This morning's reading is from John's Gospel, chapter 4, from verses 46 to 54. John 4, 46. So Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pip, thanks for reading for us. Please do uh, keep your Bibles open there. John chapter 4. As we, uh, we look at these words together. And uh, just let me lead us in prayer again though as we begin. Father God, thank you that Jesus has the words of eternal life. And we pray this morning you would help us all to listen with a fresh sense of wonder and joy. And would we uh, hear his words and respond with repentance and faith. We ask it in his name and for your glory. Amen. Just uh, last Sunday, we had some folk around for lunch, and one of them mentioned a debate between John Lennox and Peter Singer. If you don't know, Lennox is a Christian and a maths professor at Oxford University. Singer is an atheist and professor of bioethics at Princeton. In this debate, Lennox mentioned he was raised by Christian parents in Northern Ireland. Singer's reaction was to say this was a prime example of one of his objections to religion. People tend to inherit the faith they're brought up in. For him, religion is simply a matter of upbringing and environment, not a matter of truth. So Lennox says, Peter, can I ask you, were your parents atheists? Uh, My mother was certainly an atheist. My father was maybe more agnostic, he replies. So you're perpetuating the faith of your parents too, like I am, Lennox asks. It's not faith, in my view, he says. Of course it's a faith. Don't you believe it, Lennox replies. Faith is seen by many as something subjective, something private. You have your faith, I have mine. Or just seen as a spiritual hobby. One person has sport, another music, another faith. 
Or it's just a shared narrative, something to give meaning to our lives. And whether what you believe is true seems less important than whether it helps you get through life. So sometimes we hear people say, I just wish I had your faith. And what they seem to be saying is it would be nice to believe illogical, impossible and untrue fairy tales if they make you happy. For them, faith is believing despite the evidence. But the Bible, the Bible wonderfully is crystal clear about what faith is and is not. And that's especially so in our passage today. If we've been here throughout our time in John's Gospel, we'll remember John gives us his purpose statement in chapter 20. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. And it means, therefore, we're given three big questions we're always going to be on the lookout for in John's Gospel. At one, what are we learning about Jesus Christ, the Son of God? At two, what are we learning about belief or trust or faith in him? And three, what kind of life is on offer? What does it mean to have life in his name? And this morning we're zooming in on that second question, uh, the nature of true belief. What does it mean to trust Jesus? If we're here for the first time, or we've been coming to church our whole life, it is a brilliant issue to consider. It's a vital question, isn't it? Because true lie, uh, true faith, leads to life in his name. And now in the Bible, faith is not a shared narrative, an ideal, a hobby, or a subjective whim or fancy. Faith just means to trust, or rely, or depend. So what or who we trust is massively important. And here in John 4, we see genuine faith is necessary. But John, first of all, starts with the negative, as he makes clear sign faith is not sufficient faith. There we can have it on the screen. Sign faith is not sufficient faith in verses 43 to 48. Or in other words, seeing is not believing. Now, John is deliberately bookending a section for us here. So just look with me again to verse 43. Verse 43. After the two days, Jesus departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. Just in case we'd forgotten, John flags it up for us. Jesus is back in Cana in Galilee, exactly where we started in chapter 2. There we had the first sign of Jesus turning water into wine. And these are the Galileans who were at the Passover feast in Jerusalem, which points us back to chapter 2, verse 23. And we need to remember this to, to work out what John's telling us. We've got a contrast going on. We've had most of chapter 4 with Jesus in Samaria. And remember that huge harvest of people believing in him. But now he's on home turf. This is chapter 1 verse 11 being played out. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And on the face of it, verse 45 looks a bit puzzling. 
you look down, it looks like Jesus' own people are receiving him. And it appears even more puzzling when we notice the, the so or the therefore at the beginning of verse 45. And John adds this editorial comment about Jesus knowing a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Therefore, when he arrives in Galilee, his home country, the Galileans welcome him. It doesn't seem to make sense, does it? Until we read the rest of verse 45. Having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. We get a focus on what they've seen. It's sight faith or sign faith. And we're pointed back quite deliberately by John to what we read back in chapter 2, verse 23. Chapter 2, verse 23. Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he did no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. They trust in Jesus, but he doesn't entrust himself to them. Sign faith is not sufficient faith. It's not saving faith. So at the end of this section of chapters 2 to 4, we're being reminded of the insufficiency of sign faith. These Galileans welcome Jesus in just the same way as they believe in him in chapter 2. It's on the basis of what they see, on the basis of Jesus' signs alone. So we might use air quotes. They, they welcome him because they believe him. Now we've got to be clear. Sign faith is insufficient, not because the signs are suspect. Remember chapter 20, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ. So the signs, that the miracles serve a purpose, but they're not the end in and of themselves. Maybe you remember the um, illustration we've used of a kind of road sign or motorway exit sign. It's helpful to know, isn't it? Junction 5... You're driving around the M25. That is the, the turning to go down towards Tunbridge Wells. But we've got the sign all wrong if at the sign we pull over and stop. If we see someone having a picnic below the sign, Junction 5 on the M25, we'd think they've lost the plot. The sign is good, but it serves a purpose. Its job is to point us to a destination. And John wants to make sure we don't get stuck at sign faith because it's not sufficient. Jesus' signs, his miracles, are pointing us to who he is and what he's come to do. They're only the first step. And so Jesus, uh, he's here in his home country in Galilee, and there is this heart-wrenching situation of an official with a seriously ill son. Verse 46, he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. This boy is at the point of death. It's literally a life and death situation. And so verse 48 comes as a shock, doesn't it? Just imagine we've got a child who's sick. So sick... They're about to die. Uh, Jesus strolls into the room. 
Uh, we, we desperately plead with him to heal our child, to rescue them from death. What do we expect? Probably not to be told off. But just look at verse 48 again. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now given all we've just been saying, Jesus can't be saying what they need is signs and wonders to believe. It's the exact opposite, isn't it? We don't know that the tone Jesus has in verse 48, but we know it must be a rebuke. Perhaps it's said with a sigh, maybe a hint of exasperation and frustration, but it is a rebuke. A rebuke to all the Galileans. The you here is plural. Jesus has had enough of people only believing in the signs. For Jesus, sign faith is not sufficient. And don't we all need to hear this? And now and again, we might catch people talking as if believing in Jesus, that he was a real historical person and did the miracles the Bible says he did, as if that's enough, perhaps even as if they're doing Jesus a favor. But Jesus is emphatic. It is not doing Jesus a favor to believe he exists and did miracles, as if that's enough. But for Jesus, it is a woefully inadequate response made me reevaluate what we want to see in our friends and family and colleagues who aren't yet trusting in Jesus. Or if we're not yet a Christian, it highlights a wrong response for us. You see, it's not enough just to believe Jesus is who he claims to be. It's not enough even to be amazed by Jesus and marvel at him. Even having a respect and reverence for Jesus won't cut it. Now these things aren't Bad things, of course not, but they're not enough. Life and death are at stake. So if we're new to Christian things, or perhaps we've been coming to church for a while, maybe even serving in some areas, but still just interested in Jesus, or we think we're doing him a favor, please don't stop there. Or if you think trusting in Jesus is like some kind of a magic charm, when life gets bad, I'll call out to him and he'll fix it. It's not genuine faith. Did you notice the official doesn't doubt Jesus can heal his son? It's not about the amount of trust, but whether it is personal trust. Jesus isn't like some kind of spiritual get-out-of-jail-free card. Please don't think that's what Jesus came to offer. Now, all of us face the danger of wanting Jesus on our own terms. The danger of welcoming him only in so far as it suits us. Liking Jesus, but not loving him. Warm towards him, but not worshipping him. Not honouring and obeying him. The question is, will we welcome Jesus on his own terms? You see, what kind of faith is genuine, saving faith? Well, we're told, John tells us, verses 49 to 54, it is word faith that's saving faith. That's our second big idea this morning. True, genuine, full saving faith is word faith. Or another way of putting it, belief that brings life is taking Jesus at his word. I don't know if that can come up on the screen. There we go. Word faith is saving faith. Again, John's underlining, we're at the end of a section. So chapter 2, we got the water 
turned into wine. And here we get death overturned. Do you see verse 47? The boy is at the point of death. Uh, The official wants Jesus to come down before he dies, verse 49. And so it is all a fulfillment of Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 8. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. Now, there's the opening of chapter two for us, the wedding, the wine, the party. But just listen how Isaiah 25 carries on. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Isn't this the end of chapter four? Death swallowed up. Jesus really is the saviour of the world. He is the only one who can deal with death. He is the one who gives life. But how do we receive this life? In short, by taking him at his word. Just look with me again at verse 49. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Can we see how it's underlined the official believes the word Jesus speaks to him? As far as the official is concerned, Jesus gives a word and there's nothing to see, is there? It's just a couple of sentences for us, but for this official it takes him a day or so to get home. A day passes in between verses 50 and 51. And so all this time he is heading home, presumably rushing home, and he doesn't actually know how his son is. All he has is Jesus' word. All he has is Jesus' promise. And John's point is that is all we need. We're not told what's going through the the man's mind as he's uh, heading home to see his son. We do know how he responds, though. He takes Jesus at his word and heads off. Again, we're given more evidence of of Jesus' glory. He can heal the dying at a distance with just a word. We almost take it for granted, but it is staggering power and authority. Who else but God on earth can do this kind of miracle, this kind of sign? Only Jesus, through his word, can deal with death. It is this serious. It is a, a life or death situation we all face. A while back, some of you may remember, I, I plugged this book by Matthew McCulloch, a book called Remember Death. I think one or two of you have uh, subsequently read it. Uh, one of the reasons I'm so keen on it is because it puts uh, death front and centre and shows how the spectre of death puts everything in perspective. It is a perspective we need to keep. 
McCulloch writes this, French philosopher Blaise Pascal put his finger on the problem 400 years ago. He noticed the way most people seemed indifferent to the loss of their being, but intensely concerned about everything else. They fear the most trifling things, foresee and feel them. And the same man who spends so many days and nights in fury and despair at losing some office or at some imaginary affront to his honour is the very one who knows that he is going to lose everything through death but feels neither anxiety nor emotion. It is a monstrous thing to see one and the same heart at once so sensitive to minor things and so strangely insensitive to the greatest. Faith in Jesus' word, taking him at his word, deals with our deepest and greatest need. Even if we don't want to admit it or try and pretend death doesn't exist. Our culture still tries to airbrush death out of the picture, even after a year of pandemic. But recognising the inescapability of our situation, death and judgement, well, it makes Jesus and his salvation all the more precious, more relevant, more necessary. You see, faith in Jesus' word and the life we have through him is the one necessity every single human being needs. Whether we realize it or not, every one of us faces death and God's just judgment. And so it is vital we get clear what saving faith looks like. So notice again, the official believes before he sees the sign. Uh, The big point here is he believes Jesus' word before he sees the sign. Initially, uh, there's been this contrast with the Samaritans, but now there's a similarity. Uh, Just look back to verse 41. And many more believed because of his word. See, genuine faith, saving faith, faith that leads to life, eternal life, is word faith. It's word faith because it's personal faith. It's trusting Jesus to deliver on his promises, to give us life. You see, the amount of our faith doesn't matter, but its object does. On Friday, I'm sure we all noticed the wind. It was quite gusty if you looked out the the window, um, gusting all over the place. There were weather warnings in place. It was all pretty miserable. Just imagine, I know none of us gets on a plane at the moment, but just imagine you're about to board a plane and and the winds are picking up higher and higher. We might be tempted to wonder, is the plane going to make it? Now, we can get on board that plane confidently or nervously, but our amount of faith in the plane has no bearing whatsoever on whether it's going to get us to our destination safely. And perhaps we spotted in verse 53, we're told this man believes again. So it's like he exercises faith. He, he believes, he gets on the plane. And then when the plane lands, he also believes It's not that there's zero evidence for trusting Jesus as if we only have his words. No, we have his words backed up supremely by his death and resurrection. It is a rational faith. We believe Jesus, that his death in our place gives us eternal life. We we take him at his word that he opens up the way to heaven and the resurrection proves it and underlines it. Word faith is not the same as blind faith. There is evidence for this belief, this trust. 
We're holding it in our hands if we've got a Bible in front of us. The question is what we'll do with it. If we go to the, the GP for a checkup and we're told to take a certain course of medication, we can trust their word or we can ignore it. Our level of trust, though, doesn't change how effective the medicine is. And so all of this is a tremendous comfort. I don't know about you, but um, if you are a, a Christian here, it is tempting to think my evangelism would be far more effective if I could do the kind of signs and wonders Jesus did. Or maybe just something close. I'd take that. I'd settle for that. Indeed, it's what lots of Christians around the world today say. But John 4, in fact, the whole Bible teaches us Christianity is fundamentally not a signs and wonders faith. Uh, Just think about it. If the miraculous healings and feedings don't work for Jesus, uh, why would they work for us? Our friends don't need miracles, signs to persuade them. What they need is Jesus' word. Christianity is fundamentally a word faith. Just listen to chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 again. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Yes, there are signs, signs that really happened, true signs proving who Jesus is but they are written in a book. If we want people to have eternal life, they need to believe in Jesus, the one to whom the signs point. And to believe in Jesus means to take him at his word. And we'll always be tempted to think we need a more visible faith. The Bible, from cover to cover, consistently warns about living by sight. It's a huge theme right from the beginning. Do you remember Genesis 3? When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Eve puts what she sees over and against God's word. Did God actually say? Or Hebrews 11, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It all echoes why John is writing his gospel. Indeed, Jesus says to Thomas in chapter 20, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We don't need signs and wonders. What we need is Jesus' word. And taking Jesus at his word will mean we don't trust in a Jesus of our own invention. Often people say they respect and admire Jesus, but in reality, they respect and admire a Jesus of their own making. And so a faith based on Jesus' words will mean we don't mould him to fit culture or what we want. A schoolmate of mine, Tim Stanley, writes for The Telegraph, and a while back he wrote this. At the weekend, there was a discussion in this newspaper about whether or not God has a gender. I don't want young girls or boys to hear us constantly refer to God as he, said the Bishop of Gloucester, because that might alienate people. Uh, Tim Stanley continues, the Rev doesn't need to worry because no one is listening. So much of what mainstream Christians now offer is a validation of Western society, a kind of thumbs up, well done, which is stupid, 
Because unless you bring up God in a conversation, non-believers certainly won't. And John 4 gives us a wonderful focus and clarity to what we're doing. And we are seeking to introduce people to Jesus in his word. For people to come to know Jesus on his terms, not a Jesus of our own making. So what a relief. It's doable, isn't it? It's why Christianity Explored is so helpful, because it is simply focusing on Jesus and his words. And if we're a Christian, what a comfort. For this official, Christ's word is as good as his presence. And the same is true for us. He is with us by his word, through his spirit. We trust in the person of Jesus by trusting his words. And this means we really can have confidence Jesus will deliver. We can have supreme confidence in Jesus' word. It is utterly reliable. It will never, ever fail because he is utterly reliable and will never fail. We can place all of our weight, all of our confidence, all of our trust, our faith on Jesus' words for this life and for eternity. He will always, without fail, deliver on his promises. The sinner who places their confidence in the word of the Lord Jesus is safe for all eternity. We could not be safer if we saw the book of life open and our own name written in it. Is that not a wonderful reassurance? I doubt very much our week has been as bad as this official's. But even if it has, Jesus' word is where we place our trust and we will not be disappointed. We have absolutely everything we need in his word, everything we need for eternal life, everything we need for full forgiveness, everything we need for lasting joy. We just need to take Jesus at his word. Let's pray together. Jesus says these words in chapter 6. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Lord God, thank you so much for Jesus and his word. Thank you that we have such ready access to hear him. Thank you that by taking him at his word there is life. Abundant life. Eternal life. Our life to the full. And we do pray that you would help us see the sufficiency of uh, trusting in Jesus' word. We pray that through us many might come to put their faith in his word and so have life. And we ask it in his name and for your glory. Amen.